what I'd like to perhaps improve in my own work is to make sure that when you go to a community, when you're trying to work on a language, try to think about how you can actually also help the community. My name is Arsalan Kahnemuipur. I am at the Department of Language Studies and I'm an Associate Professor of Linguistics. What is it that they would like to see happen with their language? If there's anything that they think that a linguist can help with. These languages are not just dead objects. They're part of cultures that are crucial to people's lives. Dialectical Discourses. June 27th is Canadian Multiculturalism Day. So in that spirit, today's episode of the View to the U podcast features Professor Arsalan Kanemwipur to learn more about the linguistics research he undertakes in U of T Mississauga's Department of Language Studies. With this new third season of View to the U highlighting UTM's global perspectives, Arsalan outlines some of the ongoing international collaborations he has with linguists around the world. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Arsalan Kanmuipur is an associate professor in the Department of Language Studies at U of T Mississauga and in the Department of Linguistics at University of Toronto St. George campus where he has been on faculty since 2010. Prior to coming to UTM, Arsalan was an assistant professor of linguistics at Syracuse University in the U.S. for six years. His areas of expertise include syntax and morphology, the structure of sentences, phrases, and words, and the relation between syntax and phonology, the system of linguistic sounds, with a particular focus on Iranian languages. And so I understand that your research covers syntax, morphology, and phonology. I hope I'm saying those right. <laughs> those words might be a bit foreign to a lot of people. So I was wondering if you can tell us what those terms mean and maybe provide some examples of them and a bit more detail about uh, how these areas factor into your research. Sure. So basically, my main area of research is really syntax, which is the study of this uh, sentence structure of languages, the way words and sometimes board pieces come together and create larger structures and ultimately make a full clause. But then, uh, you know, in doing that, sometimes I look at levels that are a little bit lower than the sentence level, which would be morphology, like looking at the structure of words. Because, you know, the same, in the same way we can look at how word pieces come together and make larger words. My involvement with phonology is really in, with respect to its interface with syntax. So phonology is the study of the sound system of languages. And that's not my area. But uh, I have looked in the past, in particular in my dissertation, at phenomena that seem to be phonological but they really are related to the structure of the sentence, the syntax. So that's where my interest in phonology comes in. Could you tell me about a couple of projects that you're working on right now? Sure. Uh, so currently, you know, I, I have a Sherk-funded project on the syntax of nominal linkers. So basically, if you look at a language like English, like if you want to have a noun phrase with an adjective modifier, something like a big book, that's how you say it. You have maybe a determiner, an article, then followed by an adjective, followed by the noun. But then in some languages in the world, in particular, this is a very common phenomenon in Iranian languages, where you have the order in some of them, 
like Persian, which is reversed. So instead of saying big book, you have book big. But crucially, between book and big, you have to put what we call descriptively a linker, an element which is this vowel, it's an e, to make a grammatical proper noun phrase. So essentially it would be like book, e, big, which is the English version, ketabe bozorg, you know, is, is the correct way of saying it in Persian. So it's interesting. So, I mean, to understand my research and the, the kind of research we do, I think first we have to take a step back. So basically, the idea is that we are all born with a genetically endowed capacity for language, to acquire language. So it's not a blank slate. And, and when you look at it that way, and when you look across languages, then what we often see a lot of differences, and there are vast differences, but what we have shown over the years is that the differences are not actually unbounded. They're not as much as you would expect them to be. They're, they don't cover all the logical, logically possible space. Uh, so in fact, it's the similarities that in a sense that become more interesting. And then when you look at it that way, then essentially if you believe in the capacity, which we might call language with a capital L, then Persian is just one instantiation of that let's say language one with a small l, language two would be English, language three would be so on and so forth. So every time you look at a language, you're really looking at language with capital L. So you have to understand how is it that this language behaves this way, given what we know about language with a capital L. So you have to kind of try to understand it in that perspective. And that's why looking at a language is relevant for any other language. Like it's not working just in individual in that particular language. So anyway, the question we're trying to answer is what are these elements? How do they come about? I've worked on Persian before. I've you know, published work on Persian and I have you know, a story about why this is the case. And there are others who have a different story. And of course, as you expect in, in science, there are different theories and we're trying to show uh, which one is right. But what's interesting about this project is that we're looking at a much wider range of languages. So the nominal linkers, they don't only just factor into Persian language. They're found in a lot of Iranian languages. So, for example, Kurdish languages or languages of the Kurdish zone, but they have the same pattern with more interesting variations. So, for example, in Persian, it's always this e. Eh. Sometimes it sounds like yeah that shows up. But in these languages, you find the element showing some agreement with gender, with, you know, masculine, feminine, plural, singular, you know, the same way that maybe you've seen in French or Romance languages, which is interesting, the way these actually appear. But more interestingly, some Iranian languages, not very many of them, but in particular Caspian languages, which is like the languages around the Caspian Sea, they have the opposite order, which is like the English order, but with something that's a linker in there which is very surprising. So one of our goals is to look at those languages and try to understand what's happening there. And what is interesting in general in this context, because like one of the ideas that we really find crucial in our investigation is it's often really good to look at what we call sort of a micro variationist perspective, which is like, look at languages that are otherwise quite similar mm -hmm. syntactically, but then differ in this one area, because you might have a better way of understanding what's going on rather than having too many variables to, to deal with. And so with these Iranian languages, though, are there such a thing as like dialect so that it uh, varies according to region? Like it would say in Italy that 
there's like dialects that they speak. So is that the case with some of these languages that you're studying? Yeah, the difference between language and dialects is often, you know, not necessarily scientific distinction. Okay. It's a lot of times it's very political. I don't remember who this quote is from. A language is a dialect with an army. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these are regional languages. If they're mutually comprehensible by speakers, then it's a dialect. Yeah. If they're not, then we're talking about languages. Right. And in these cases, I'm, the interesting differences are among languages when it comes to something like this. I haven't seen like two dialects of the same. Eh, I shouldn't say that because actually Dari Persian or Dari, some people just call it, the Persian spoken in Afghanistan, uh, they have some interesting uh, properties. The, the linker has some interesting properties that the Persian spoken in Iran doesn't have. And I would definitely consider them dialects of Again, politically, maybe people don't want to do that, but like scientifically, I think they're dialects of the same language because we can understand each other when we speak. So yeah, so there could be interesting differences there too, but especially when you look at language and the Italian dialect, there are just a lot of languages there. There's so many, many languages and yeah. with very interesting yeah. differences. And you don't delve so much into language acquisition per se. You're looking at more the sort of already established language yeah, yeah, so my area is not, yeah, but I mean, there, there are a lot of interesting questions there, but we look at the system as it is. I just want to ask that question because you mentioned about how we all are sort of predisposed to a certain ease with, la not ease with language, but... Sort of the capacity, capacity to acquire language, yeah, yeah, but I think the two questions are sort of in the end connected at a very high level, right. but you know, of course, when you do research, you're looking, looking at very, very small specific yeah. question, but ultimately they have to be related. There are other projects too. So another one, for example, is sort of at least the Shirk funded part is almost complete now, but the project doesn't end, as you can imagine, yeah. which is the uh, agreement in copular clauses. So what are we talking there? So a copular clause is a sentence like, John is a student. And in a language like English, you know, for example, if you're looking at pictures and trying to describe who's in the picture, you say, this is me. So the is is agreeing with this and not with me. But in a lot of other languages like Italian or uh, Persian, you would say something like this am I. So this variation is the question that my colleague, Professor Susanna Behar, University of Toronto, uh, Professor St. George Campus, and I have been looking at, I mean, I really simplified it with that example, but it's much more complicated when you look at the details. And again, trying to look at different languages to see where this variation comes from. She has some really interesting data from Indic languages and other language families spoken in India as well, which we haven't really analyzed yet. I can't even imagine. There's just so many languages that even with that, how do you narrow it down sometimes with... I guess it's yeah. your area of expertise. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. But I mean, often we try to start off like, so for example, the Linker project, I'm trying to start with the Iranian languages, yeah. but people have claimed to have found these linkers. In Persian, it's called Ezofe, then people call them Ezofe. In other languages, like Rom people talk about it in Albanian, Romanian, and then you start wondering, are they the same things? Are they different things? So our, one of our goals is to then go and look at the non-Iranian languages and see what's happening there. We might be looking at phenomena that look similar, yeah. but they're not in fact the same. So uh, that would be interesting to find as well. I'm wondering, I know you said that you don't have too much to say on this, but how many languages do you speak? No, I'm, I'm happy to say it, but I'm just <laughs> going to disappoint you. So basically my native language is Persian, uh, and that's my first language. That's the language I'm most comfortable with. I'm hoping to have been able to convince 
the listeners that I can speak English. <laughs> so English is the other language I speak, and I know some French. Beyond that, you know, I can read Arabic a little bit. I mean, the writing systems are very similar, and, you know, the words, the, a lot of borrowing into Persian, but also, like, we have learned Arabic in school. But the reality is with linguists, like, you might come across some linguists who actually are know a lot of languages, multilingual, but often they know a lot about languages, but not necessarily know the language. So, for example, I've worked on Eastern Armenian, I've worked on Turkish, I've even worked on Nuwayan. Can I speak those languages? Unfortunately not. I wish I could. I remember hearing once, and I don't know if it's true, but the more languages you know, the easier it is to pick up a new language. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I'm not giving an expert opinion here, but I think it's true. But I gotta be careful, <laughs> you know, being a professor saying something. But I think it's true. Like yeah. you can even see that in real life. Like, yeah. and that's maybe is an indication that the differences are not as vast as people think. The words are absolutely different. The sounds, you know, are, are different, but the structures. So once you learn a few of them, you kind of get a sense of the variation, then you might find it easier to pick up other ones. And I have actually, like, we have, I have a student who knows like 10, 12 languages. It's unbelievable. I, just... I know French and uh, I tried to learn Italian. And even though Italian and French are similar, there was interference from the French. So, you know, when I would try to put together a sentence in Italian, the French would creep in. So I just, I think that happens though too, that even though I could probably look at the Italian language and read some of it and kind of get a comprehension of what yeah. it was, but to speak it, the yeah. French was kicking in. Absolutely, I have had the same experience. I don't know, like again, I, I'm sure somebody has done research on this. It's an interesting question. Which language actually interferes when you're trying to Learning. Is it because French and Italian are similar or is it because like somehow your second language, you know, interferes when you're trying to learn it there? Because when I was learning French, I could at the very beginning, especially somehow Arabic was coming, which was a very bizarre feeling for me because I didn't know that much Arabic, you know. And I am curious about how did you get interested in this area of research to begin with? Okay, that's actually a very strange path because I started off, I studied in Iran and, and in Iran, like you kind of have to if you're a good student, you kind of have two paths, right? Like, you know, you either become a doctor or an engineer. Like, it's that's the expectation of the society. And, you know, I was just a kid. And I had, so I was interested in math. So I went to an engineering school, actually, technical school. I can got admitted to the engineering program and I actually finished it. So I was, and initially I loved math. I, I loved theory. Like, I, I loved calculus, differential equations, that stuff. But then the engineering, the applied stuff, I didn't really enjoy so it was a very, uh, okay, so then I finished that, and then I was like, okay, I don't want to be an engineer. I just couldn't see myself. I worked for a few couple of years, but I didn't see myself as really becoming an engineer friend, being an engineer for the rest of my life. So then I, th I was interested in humanities. I was interested in movies. Like I used to read about film theory, semiotics, and so then I thought, okay, somehow I have to get into humanities. Then I got into an MA. There's an entrance examination in Iran for anything you want to do at the university level. So then I thought, and you didn't need to have a humanities degree to get into the MA. And so I came across teaching English as a second language. I knew English because I had lived in the U.S. for one year, but that's a different story. So then I took in that exam, and then I did MA in teaching English as a second language. I realized I don't really like teaching English, but there I came across linguistics and that fascinated me because it has, I mean, it's very scientific, like it's database, but it's also very, a lot of argumentation. Like it's, in that sense, it's very humanistic too. Like, so you have to kind of argue for your 
position theory. It's a lot of theory. There's a lot of data. Like you, you know, you have to analyze data. How you collect that data is a different. Like it could be different from psycholinguist. Somebody who looks at processing, who does experimental work, than me with this theoretical. I might just elicit data from speakers and so on. But in the end, we analyze the data, and so I loved it. And then I said, okay, so I love this now. And then I did another entrance examination. I did one year of an MA. I didn't finish this. I at that point I immigrated to Canada, and at the same time I applied to a PhD in linguistics. And with a lot of difficulty, I got into the program, mm-hmm. and did an extra year because I didn't have enough of a background. And ultimately, got my PhD in linguistics in 2004. And the rest is kind of history. Do you find though then that did your math and engineering training help with your uh, linguistics? I think so. I, I to be honest, I think that the, you know sort of the algorithmic thinking. I mean, just generally the way you approach problems. Even as a teacher, as a professor, you know, I, I see that the students coming from the science, from a science background, actually usually do quite well. Yeah in our courses, because it has that type of thinking. Some people say like, oh, linguistics is language math or math of language or something, you know. It's sort of mathematical. I mean, the thinking is very mathematical. It doesn't mean we're just necessarily working with numbers, which some of us do actually, but. I like that story. And so uh, have you come across any findings that you found particularly surprising in the course of your work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I should probably think of a lot of cases. But I mean, even in the context of the linker work, the first time I came across the Caspian language, I was surprised because I initially thought that shouldn't exist. And, you know, that's what's great about science. Like you come across phenomena that you didn't expect to happen, and then you have to kind of revisit the way you look at the question. This is not, shouldn't be that surprising. I should have noticed it earlier, but like just to maybe it would be interesting for people to know how we come up with our research questions. So the copular question, the way it came about for me, even though I should have noticed it sooner, but it was my daughter, like who's a heritage speaker of Persian and raised in Canada and in an English speaking environment, looking at a picture instead of saying, this am I, this is the Persian that I'm sort of the pseudo Persian, right? So she said something like, this is I, or this I is, right? Like the order in Persian is different, but I should have said this I am and this. Anyway, so basically the English, and where did that come from? And then immediately, oh yeah, because that's the way it is in English. And that's how I got interested in looking at this question. We're surprised, I guess, more often than we might think, but the real surprises, I mean, some of them maybe shouldn't be surprises, but the real surprises are cases where you kind of, have predictions based on, you know, your analysis and then you realize that, yeah, you know, what something that shows up that doesn't look right and you try to understand what that is. I also find that very interesting because I think sometimes you don't know what path you're going to be sort of following and then something comes up that leads you down a path that you hadn't anticipated taking, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. I know this is a very broad question and I like asking it because I do get a range of answers, but what do you think is the biggest impact of your work? Hard question. The biggest impact, the impact might be small, but I mean, basically the impact that it might have had on other scholars working on the questions that I've looked at. And going back to my dissertation, I mean, at that point, I think it might have had a little bit of impact. I looked at a problem that at that point was kind of new and like not many people were looking at. 
but it's hard to know. It's true, because sometimes I'll get people saying, you know, about adding to the scholarship and the dialogue and things like that. And sometimes it's about the knowledge mobilization piece. So, you know, that you're training students and you're setting them off on their own research paths. If it's my work, my career, yeah, hopefully I've managed to impact students. And I, I mean, I have large classes, 500 every year. So I've had thousands of students. And sometimes you impact them in ways that you don't even expect like I remember once I even mentioned the name of a singer and like a year later the student wrote to me and said wow I that triggered me to go and look for this and now I that's the only thing I listen to but it's true you don't know sometimes how you impact people it's so true yeah and we have to show appreciation for our teachers to be honest even the, the email I got from that city I felt good about it right that even something you hadn't anticipated exactly you know so and then you you also feel like a lot of responsibility comes with that because you realize oh whatever you say yeah they're listening to you coming up global perspectives Arsalan talks about some of his international linguistics collaborations as well as ways to celebrate and commemorate Canada's multiculturalism So this new season of the podcast is focused on global perspectives. So I've been speaking with UTM researchers who've had some kind of global impact or do work, or they have collaborations around the world. I wondered if you could speak to this impact and some of your global research partnerships. I know you do work with some people that are in other parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, because of the nature of our work, the mere fact that we look at a lot of different languages, we typically have to have the speakers of those languages from those countries. I mean, we're very lucky to be in Toronto, so you can pretty much find any language here in Toronto, but you know, sometimes it works out better to actually contact people who are far away. So in terms of the language speakers, for sure, and the communities, but in terms of like scholarship, I have a co-author, for example, in Iran, Gilan University, uh, Professor uh, Mansur Shabani. So I've worked with him, we looked at some noun phrase variations in, in Gilai. But then also like with the University of Geneva, so that's something that I'm trying to start, like I've always done theoretical syntax, but now this would be more experimental, but looking at WH questions and the way they are formed in Persian. So this is Professor Ur Shlansky and Professor Julie Frank, both at the University of Geneva, and Professor Whitney Tabor from the University of Connecticut, also like this is a group. And next year, for example, I'm very happy to have a postdoctoral fellow coming to work with me from Turkey, a Kurdish, a Kurmanji Kurdish speaker, Dr. Sungol Gunogdu. She's coming to work with us. So there are a lot of connections there. And what are WH questions? Or are you just talking about yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. The, the, the term comes from the English, and people okay. use it for any language, even though they don't have W. But like, you know, what did you eat? Where okay. did you go? Uh, and often, some languages like English put that WH. Typically, if you're seeking new information, you put it at the beginning of the um, sentence. But some languages like Mandarin would just say like you ate what, essentially something along those lines. If it's in in place. And then there are languages like Persian, which is kind of like the Mandarin case, but it actually shows up a little bit away from that position. And then it's interesting. So in English, you would say something, what did John say that Mary baked? Or something like that, where, you know, it moves all the way to the beginning of the clause. But in a context like that, in Persian, you seem to have three, four places you can put the WH. And then it's interesting, like when you put at the beginning of the clause, 
Did it really just end up there, start there? Did it go through those intermediate positions? Are those intermediate positions active? We call them gaps. Uh, so there are ways of experimentally trying to test like whether in the processing of that sentence, so you have four different places you can put it. So June 27th is Canadian Multiculturalism Day. And, you know, we do live in a very, as you mentioned, Toronto's very diverse city. And I liked that you mentioned, too, about how there's so many different languages being spoken in Toronto. Mm -hmm. I know this came up. We just had the Raptors win last night. And they even talked about within the context of the team, there's a lot of different languages being spoken because they do have a few players from different countries. But in terms of it being Canadian Multiculturalism Day, what do you think is a fitting or productive way to commemorate this day? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's part of our identity, I think, as at least the new Canada or, you know, uh, modern Canada as we know it. So I would love to see the <laughs> languages being actually celebrated in this context. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great to, you know, celebrate the diversity, but also think about how to integrate the, the various cultures into this one country that we're all very fortunate to live in. I think if people wanted to expand their linguistic repertoire, if there's a website or app that you found (laughs) that's particularly good with teaching, because you know, I hear people talk about that Rosetta Stone or like whatever it is. Is there something that you think is particularly good with, I know again, this probably isn't really your area, but. No, it's not. (laughs) That's the question I don't know the answer to. (laughs) I would would really like to know where I could, I, I have no idea. I've tried Duolingo and I don't know it was fine like it's fun but I have no expert opinion about it and I would love to know what are some good I mean the best way to learn obviously is go to the actual environment and someone was telling me a good way to keep a language alive I know sometimes I'm losing my French and they said to listen to French radio or like watch programs in French like that helps to bring it back yeah for sure yeah especially if you know the language already to some extent then, then it would help a lot they are all the questions that I have for you but I just wondered, um, is there something that you would like to add that, I don't know, we just didn't cover? And is about your research or about you or? Yeah, I think maybe one thing I would like to sort of end with, because we work on languages, and then these languages are not just dead objects. They're, you know, they're, they're part of cultures that are crucial to people's lives. And sometimes I think what I'd like to perhaps improve in my own work is to make sure that when you go to a community, when you're trying to work on a language, try to think about how you can actually also help the community or what is it that they would like to see happen with their language. If there's anything that they think that a linguist can help with. More recently, I think uh, linguists are really making uh, note of that and trying to really address that issue. And it's something that's sort of fresh in my mind that I kind of would like to change because often it could be seen as, okay, you just go get the data, do your work, and that's it. And that shouldn't be the right approach. And maybe it's also in the context of multiculturalism, that's also important, like to care about the languages and the cultures that are actually represented. And I think, again, that probably speaks to the impact that you would have as a researcher, um, but also just someone contributing to the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. So it's not just about scholarship. There are things that are really important. It's a very good, positive way to end. So I wanted to thank you so much for your time and for speaking to me about your research today. Thank you, Carla. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of You to the You. I would like to thank my guest, Arsalan Kanwipur, for telling us about his research in UTM's Department of Language Studies. 
I would like to thank the Office of Vice Principal Research for their support, and in particular my colleague Maeve Doyle, who's been helping to promote the podcast through her newly created Instagram page. Check it out at U of T Mississauga Research for curated UTM research tidbits, and also for being our A1 on-site photographer actually making photo shoots fun. Thanks, Maeve. Lastly, and as always, thank you to the musical Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.